turn with me to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 5, verse, uh, where today we will study verses 12 through 21. Um, it is always good and wise and hopefully obvious advice that we pay very close attention to the reading of God's word. But I think that is especially the case uh, today. Uh, this is not an easy text. Uh, we have to have our thinking uh, caps on today. And so we always want to pay attention, but especially today, pay careful, close attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and life-giving word. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, <clears throat> even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many, many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This ends the reading of God's holy and errant an inspired word, may he write its eternal truth upon all of our hearts. The Christmas season, even if you're not really what you would consider a traditionalist, seems like at Christmas everyone becomes a traditionalist. We all follow certain traditions. And what's interesting is, depending on where you're from, those traditions are always going to look a whole lot different. I mean, just one example is, is Santa Claus. Santa Claus is something that we do here in the United States, but he goes by different names in other parts of the world. Papa Noel, Father Christmas. Um, if you want a, a little fun adventure after church today, I encourage you just go online and look up uh, European Christian uh, Christmas uh, traditions. Some of them are absolutely wild. Things like Krampus, uh, the anti-Santa Claus who comes rather than, than giving presents, comes and takes them away from little boys and little girls and takes them in his sleigh and goes and drops them in a well in Spain or something like that. It's very strange traditions that a lot of people have. And so, but we all love our Christmas traditions. But there's one tradition that seems to be uh, universal in nature. It doesn't matter if you're here or in Europe, Africa, or China, wherever you are and you're celebrating Christmas, there's one thing that we all do a lot of. 
And that's spend a lot of money. Christmas, I don't know if you noticed this, is expensive. Really, no matter how you do it. I think in my experience, you have some people who are um, quantity gift givers. When you go to their house and you see their Christmas tree, it's just loaded with Christmas presents. Tons of them. My mom is very much a quantity type gift giver. But then other people, you'll go to their houses, there's not that many gifts, but they're more quality oriented. They want to give the good stuff. So they won't give much, but they'll give the really good stuff. Either way, no matter what you're doing, you're spending a lot of money. And you're trying not to spend yourself into the poorhouse. Well, as I've been you know, going out and buying gifts and spending money, I, I can't help but think of the most expensive gift that I've ever bought. And I think pretty much every man in here, this will be the same thing for you. It wasn't even a Christmas gift. It was my wife's engagement ring. And it's all expensive because of one thing, that, that rock right in the middle of it, the diamond. Diamonds are, are, are very costly. Before I bought that, I didn't know anything about diamonds, but it turns out the value of a diamond is, is weighed by what is called the, the four Cs. Uh, the one is the carat weight, uh, the bigger the better. The next one is, is clarity. Is it, is it cloudy or is it crystal clear? Uh, the third one is the color. Is it, is it pure, clear, white, or does it have a little bit of yellow mixed in with it? Maybe another kind of brown color. Um, what does the color look like? Hillary, don't look at your ring too closely. <laughs> the next one, and this is what I want to draw your attention to, is the cut of the diamond. And this one stands out from the rest of them because it actually doesn't have anything to do with something that is inherent with the diamond itself. I don't know if you've ever seen an uncut diamond, but there's nothing at all special about it. It's just a rock. If you threw it out in your driveway, you wouldn't even be able to pick it out, most likely, from the other rocks that you see. But it's all based upon the skill, the experience, and the hard work of a jeweler who takes that just plain, ordinary rock, cuts it, and polishes it, and turns it into the diamond that it is. And that is a painstaking process. Even a highly precise machine can take about 24 hours to cut a diamond. But the best diamonds are always going to be cut by hand. And there was one sold at, at auction in 2013 in Geneva, Switzerland, that took 21 months to cut to its final form. It's a painstaking, difficult task, but at the end of it, you're left with something that is nearly priceless, that gives beauty and gives joy and happiness to those who see it and enjoy it. What we have today in Romans 5 is something like this uncut diamond. It is a difficult text. You have to put on your thinking cap to understand it. And sometimes it's so difficult. Even Maybe you even notice this as you're, as you're going through it. You're just like trying to connect the verses to one another, and you're like, Paul, like, ugh, does it, why does it have to be this, why does it have to be this difficult? Well, what we're given here is a task, a difficult task. But what awaits us at the end of it is something more beautiful and something more glorious than any diamond the earth has ever produced. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This far through our Advent series, we have been focusing on the doctrine of the Incarnation, particularly on the human nature of Jesus Christ. How he was eternally God, and yet he became flesh. How he was born of the Virgin Mary, and therefore born apart from Adam in original sin, and able to be sinless. 
And because he was sinless, he was able to take upon himself the wrath of God for the sins of his people. And that he was able to bestow upon God's people his own perfect righteousness. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In order for that to be true, he needed to be born without sin. That took place at the virgin birth. But now Paul is taking the diamond of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he's, going to, he's shining a different light upon it. We're not going to be talking today about the nature of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ, the, the deity of Jesus Christ. We're going to be speaking more about the office of Jesus Christ. This morning I want us to understand that Christ, the God-man, has become our representative before God in the covenant of grace. Let me repeat that for you because it's the main point. Christ the God-man has become our representative before God in the covenant of grace. And so to understand what that means, we need to first understand what a covenant is. How do they work? A covenant is a commitment that binds two parties together in a relationship. We're in relationships all the time. Relationships come and go. When you, when you go to Kroger and you're buying groceries and you're in line with somebody, you have a relationship with that person. You're in the same store, buying many of the same things. You might even be wearing similar clothing. But once you leave, the relationship is severed. Why? Because there is nothing binding that relationship together. But it's different with your husband and your wife. It's not just for a time. It's until death do you part. You share a house. You share a family. You share a bank account. You share a car with your spouse. The reason, that, the reason you do that is because one day you went to a church and you made covenant vows with one another. It is that covenant that binds the relationship. It's not a feeling that you have for the other person. It is the covenant that binds husbands and wives together. And there are many covenants in the Bible that work the same way. But what you see in the Bible is these covenants that God makes with his people in order that he might bind himself to them, always will use a representative. At the flood of Noah, the world is full of violence and God makes a covenant. And he makes that covenant with all of creation, humans, animals, the ground, the water, the sky, everything. And he makes a promise to it. He says, I will not destroy the earth again with water. But he doesn't come to every single individual in this room and say, hey, by the way, you see that bow in the air? Yeah, that's a sign of my promise to you. No. He made that promise to Noah. Noah was the representative in the Noahic covenant. And then God decides, I'm going, to, I'm going to call a people to myself from the line of Abraham. And I'm going to call them Israel. But he doesn't go to each individual Israelite and make them promises. He goes to Abraham. And he makes a covenant with him and his offspring after him. He goes to Moses and he calls Moses up the mountain and he gives Moses his law. And he says, this is how my people are to live and then he goes to David and he says, I am going to give a throne to your family forever and ever and ever. He didn't go to Solomon. He didn't go to Hezekiah or any of these other kings. He goes to David. All of these covenants have representatives. But the first covenant, even before Noah, before Abraham, you had the covenant that he made with Adam. And it was called the covenant of 
works. It was called the covenant of works because it was upon the, the it was upon Adam to fulfill all that was necessary for this covenant relationship. He had to be obedient perfectly and perpetually. And so God comes, he makes this binding agreement with them. The covenant comes with commands. He tells Adam to work and to keep the garden, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, and then to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that covenant, those commands, came with promises for his perfect obedience. He has given the tree of life. He says, if you obey my words, if you trust me, you will eat, you and your family will eat of this tree forever and ever and ever. And you will not just live forever, but you will live forever in communion with me, your maker. And you will have peace and you will have joy. There will be no suffering or sickness or death. But there are also curses that were added to this covenant. And he says, in the day that you disobey my command, and the day that you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. But it wasn't just Adam who died, was it? It was all of his posterity after him. It was all of his children, you, me, our grandparents, our great-great-grandparents. Our cemeteries are full because our representative Adam broke that promise. And this is Paul's main point in verses 12 through 14. Let me read for you verse 12, which I think is it's critical for understanding what Paul is getting at in this text. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul writes, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Look there at that la- those last two words, all sin. And notice what he's not saying. He's not saying all men having sin. He's not saying all men are sinning, but that all men sinned. Uh, you can't really see this in the English, but in the, in the Greek, the verb form there um, tells us that Paul is referring to one particular sin committed in history. He's referring to the sin of the one man, Adam. In Adam, you sinned. I sinned. Everyone sinned in Adam. Through Adam, sin came into the world and was counted to all who he represented. And so death, the consequence of sin, spread to all. Paul uses this fact to explain how it is that death came to be a part of the natural world. See, the... The modern man thinks death is just, well, this is just how nature works. You know, you're born, you live for a little while, and, and then you die. It's the, it's the circle of life. But the Bible paints a very different picture. Death is not natural. Death was not part of the created order of the cosmos. Death is an unwanted guest. But Genesis 1, 2, and 3 tells us that it is not an uninvited guest. It was Adam who invited death into our current realities. It is Adam that made death a part of our very nature. That's what Paul is getting at in verse 12. In Adam, all sinned. Now let's look at verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul is not saying here that everyone before the law was able to get off of the hook. He's telling, he's making it perfectly clear to us that if we just kind of shut our ears off to the commands of God, that somehow we can get out of, of being guilty before God. We can get out of, of, of being sinful. This is clearly not what the Apostle Paul is saying if you've read the rest of the book of Romans. Romans 1, he says that none, no one has an excuse before God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 2, he says that we are a law, those who are born apart from the law are a law unto themselves and their consciences bear witness against them. He's not saying that this is a get out of jail free card. He is showing us that death reigned even apart from the law and death is the wage of sin. Sin has reigned since Adam and through Moses because in Adam all died. Paul is making it perfectly clear. Stopping our ears up and ignoring the commands of God will not save you from the curse of death. And it gets even more tragic. It's not even just ignorance that doesn't get you out of death. Innocence won't get you out of death either. I like to go walking with my wife in that graveyard. And I can't tell you how many innocent graves I see out there. They're the, the little tombs, those tiny ones, the infants. You see, that, I think this is what Paul means when he says those whose transgressions are, are not like those of Adam. You see, when I sin and when Adam sinned, we make a conscious choice. We know the law of God either through nature or through the word of God. And we purposely, as an act of our will, transgress that law. And therefore we die. Adam had, Adam, Adam had a command that he broke. Moses had a command that he broke. But the infants, they don't transgress the law. They can't transgress the law. They do not have the capabilities to do it. They don't, have a, they don't have a will just yet. They're too young. They're too little. And yet that graveyard is full of their graves. Why are they dying if they are not sinning? They're not sinning. It is because in Adam all sinned. And death comes to all. There is no greater testimony that the world that we live in is broken than those little tombs out there in the graveyard. It is heartbreaking. We live in a world that is full of pain. And death is a bullhorn that screams it from the mountaintops. This world is broken. This world is sad. This world is under condemnation. Death is a terrible and unwanted guest in our lives, but as I have said before, it is not an uninvited guest. It was invited in by our representative, Adam. He has let death and sin into the front door of our lives. There is no escaping it. Paul is showing us the scourge of death in verses 12 through 14 so that we might be broken out of our contentment of this fallen world. 
Many of us are far too comfortable living in the world as it is. But when we take a walk amongst the tombstones, it breaks us of that. Paul is bringing us to the graveyard. He is saying, look, your world needs something. Adam is not good enough. You are not good enough. But here's the good news. Paul was not called to be an apostle of the bad news of Adam. Paul was called to be an apostle of the good news of Christ Jesus, the second and greater Adam. And this is what he turns our attention to now in verses 15 through 21. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, if you look with me down in verses 15 through 21, just, just a, a quick little perusing of this. You'll see a, a comparing and contrasting between Adam, the one man Adam, and the one man Jesus Christ. Look at how he describes the work and the consequences of the work of Adam. He says of the work of Adam, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment following the one trespass because of one man's trespass. Therefore, as one trespass, for as by one man's disobedience, he is just ramming this idea into our heads. Adam was disobedient. Your representative was disobedient. He was a trespasser, a transgressor of the law of God. And what does Paul say about the results of Adam's representing us with disobedience? He says, many died. Judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. As one trespass led to the condemnation of all men. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Trespass disobedience leading to death 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 as difficult as that text is to understand that's one thing you cannot miss it is in every single verse adam was disobedient and therefore death and condemnation came not just to some men but to all men but now compare that to what Paul says about the Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam, in verses 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life to all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Christ is the better Adam and the better representative of a better covenant because it was his work that God establishes the covenant of grace. Everyone in the world has somebody representing them in a particular type of covenant. You are either in a relationship with God in the covenant of works where Adam and his disobedience is your representative and then you prove that his representation is good every single time you sin. Every single time you have an impure thought or an impure word or make an impure action, it proves that he is your perfect representative. Or you are in the covenant 
of grace, which is not apart from works. We are saved by works, but it is not by our own works that we will be saved. It is by the perfect work, the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are found to be in the covenant of grace, by grace through faith alone, you receive life rather than death. And rather than receiving condemnation, you receive grace in its full abundance. There is no lack in the covenant of grace. It is full, complete, and it is eternal. Before we move on to some closing applications, I want to draw your attention to something in, in verses 15 through 17. Notice how Paul describes the work of Christ there in this little paragraph. And it's a, it's a funny thing because if you're not paying attention, you'll almost miss it. Because he doesn't even reference it as being a work. There's a, there's, a, there's a phrase there that's repeated over and over again. The free gift. Just peruse it. I won't read it. Just look at it. Free gift. Free gift. Free gift. Free gift. Paul will go on to say in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. But he doesn't stop there. The passage goes on. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. A wage is something that you earn. If you want to earn something before God, you will receive a paycheck and up and upon it will be written death. But if you open your hands, come to the feet of the Father, bringing nothing, you will receive the free gift, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Salvation isn't just a thing. It's not even merely a pronunciation. It is Jesus, and you receive him freely. Come to him, you who are but have no money, you are who are thirsty and have no water, you who are hungry and have no food, and you will receive everything in abundance. We are beggars, but we are joyful beggars in Jesus Christ. So we all have a representative. It's either Adam or it's, or it's the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to finish this morning with a, a few points of just brief application. I mentioned last week the, the story of, uh, the story of a, a Christmas carol. I, I love it. It's one of my favorite films. I've read a little bit of the book. It's, it's very, very well written. Actually, if you've seen the movies, it's almost a carbon copy uh, there of the book. But I will say this about it. As much as I love it, it contains a false gospel. The God, you will not find the gospel in Dickens' Christmas Carol. You know the story. Scrooge is visited by three spirits. The first shows him how wicked he was in the past. The second shows him how wicked he is in the present. And the third one shows him the end of his wickedness, which is the tomb. And then that's when the false gospel is presented. The gospel in the Christmas Carol is Scrooge's second chance. Scrooge begs the ghost of Christmas future that he will be given time to make up for his, his past sins. He says this, he says, Good spirit, your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I yet may change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. The grace 
of a Christmas carol is the grace of a second chance. How many second chances have you had? How many third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances have you had? I have had a countless number of chances, and not a single one of them has done me any good. You do not need a second chance. It will not do you any favors. What you need is the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What you need to understand and what you need to cherish in your heart, the thing that will change your heart and change your mind, will make you a new person, is the fact that Christ Jesus represents you perfectly. That your righteousness and that your blessedness is not found here. It's found there. It is at the right hand of God. It perfectly intercedes for you. It perfectly loves you. It perfectly gave itself for you. It's not an it. It is a he. And when you believe that, when it possesses your heart, the ghosts of your past sins, guilt and shame will pass away in the light of Christ's obedience. The ghosts of your present weaknesses, timidness and anxiety will be turned into confidence knowing that your righteousness is in Jesus Christ. And the ghosts of your future doubts will be turned into the sure hope knowing that eternal life is not a paycheck to be earned, but is a free gift to be received once and for all. You're not merely waiting for eternal life. You will die one day, unless the Lord Jesus comes in the next couple of decades. You will die. But you possess eternal life right here and right now. The free gift is not like the trespass that brought death. The free gift is eternal life. It is justification. It is righteousness. And it is life in its full abundance. It is Jesus Christ himself. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ did not despise the virgin's womb. He did not despise the cattle stall. And he does not to this day despise the hearts of sinners. But instead comes, blows through the door of our sin and contempt and pride and idolatry and destroys sin and in its place builds something new and great, a child of God. Father, there is nothing like your grace. It is inexhaustible. Father, we do not ask too much of a thing that we might receive more of what is inexhaustible. Father, give us more of Jesus. Give us more of his grace. Let us know him. Let us love him by letting us know that we are loved by him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.